Hello and welcome to the Big 100, the 100th episode of the Dairy Dialogue podcast. Due to COVID restrictions, I couldn't exactly have a big get-together and we don't have a huge budget, so this is all I could get. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and we're back on track with a longer podcast today and four interviews. So lots to look forward to, including our weekly look at the news, and there's a lot of that again, and there's news of an upcoming webinar. As I mentioned last week, we're now available on all kinds of podcast platforms, so no excuses to not listen. There's iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, CastBox, and lots more that I've never heard of. I've no idea which one's the best. I've got a couple of them and listened to a few podcasts from around the world, mostly on sport and music, when I have time, that is. I used to listen to podcasts a lot when I commuted, but since starting to work from home a few years ago, my commute time is now about eight seconds. 15 if I'm on one of my dozen or so trips to the kitchen every day. Either way, I'm glad you're listening, however, and wherever you're listening. It's been a mixed bag of weather here, as always, although we've actually had some warm weather. And I even downloaded an app this week, not related to podcasts, but it tells me when and where in Scotland the Northern Lights can be visible, although it's still at least a month away from that actually happening. I did see them once when I lived in Canada. It was in Nova Scotia, and it wasn't really spectacular, to be honest. Lots of activity in the village this week as we had two sets of temporary traffic lights in the village. It felt like Manhattan. Well, not quite. I think there are probably more than 15 cars an hour in Manhattan. Also, we have two four-day weeks for the kids at school this week and next. Obviously, after five months away from the classroom, they needed another couple of days off. So let me tell you who's on the show this week. We chatted with Frank Borman, Market Manager, SBU Check Weighing at Metal at Toledo, Marcus Fenner, Vice President of Sustainability at Tetra Pak, Torben Jensen, Senior Category and Application Manager for Fresh Dairy Products at Arla Foods Ingredients, and Sophie Davido, Innovation Director, Sweet Goods and Dairy for Europe, Asia and the Middle East at Givaudan. And, of course, we have a weekly look at the global dairy markets as well with Liam Fenton from StoneX. Before we get to the news, let me hit you with some breaking news of our own, and that is that we have a webinar on dairy ingredients coming up on November the 5th. That's bonfire night in the UK, hopefully no fireworks on the podcast. So more details about that soon, although you can pencil it in on your diary or block it off on Microsoft Teams for 3pm UK, 16 hours Western Europe, 10am Eastern, and lots of other time zones are available, including those weird ones that are half an hour different from everybody else. So, to the news. Danimer Scientific and PSI are getting together to create bio-based home compostable film packaging, and we'll have an interview on that on the podcast soon. Kemp's introduced flavoured shelf-stable canned milk in the US, and there is a New York State dairy competition for startups and emerging businesses. 
We had an article on a new Icelandic dairy company starting up in Pennsylvania called Reykjavik Creamery, and that got lots of comments. Friesland Campina Ingredients expanded its lactoferrin production capacity, and we had a packaging special on Friday featuring articles with Nomadic Dairy, Chadwick's, and KM Packaging. Nestle China is upgrading its Dairy Farming Institute and the IDF Goat and Sheep Milk Symposium that we had an interview about earlier in the year before it was cancelled is now taking place virtually. It's actually more than just goats and sheep milk. It's also including other milks such as camel and donkey. ADM has come up with six ways food and beverage innovation is evolving through COVID-19 and Carberry Group has launched a new cheese brand for the ingredient and food service sectors. Fonterra Australia has acquired cheese company Dairy Country and Food Union has launched products in Singapore, Taiwan and Hong Kong. And to finish, I have another chart for you from this week's news. And you thought you'd not have to endure another awful pun like Mozzarella Fitzgerald. This week it's Addicted to Cheese by Robert Parmesan. But no, really, Brand Finance published its top 10 list of the world's most valuable dairy brands. And here they are, in reverse order, of course. Down three at 10, it's Almarai. Also down three at seven is Yakult. A new entry at 8 is Anchor, and also a new entry at 7 is another New Zealand brand, Anlene. Down 1 at 6 is India's Amul, and dropping 1 to 5, Arla. New at 4 is Friso from the Netherlands, and no change at number 3 for Chinese company Mengnu. Dropping 1 place to number 2 is Danone, which means we have a new number 1. And it's a jump of 1 place from last year to take top spot for the Chinese dairy giant Ely. And that's it for this week's news. You can read all of this and a lot more at DairyReporter.com. So let's get on with the show. And first up this week is Frank Borman, Market Manager, SBU Check Weighing at Metla Toledo. I was interested in an article we had on the company recently about new vision inspection add-ons which allow manufacturers to incorporate fully integrated smart camera technology into their production lines to verify the presence of correct labels. I know it's not been that long since you were on the show, but I noticed that you had some new products that look very interesting and also something that I think probably are a big help to your customers when it comes to reducing waste. Exactly. The, you know, the philosophy from Metla Toledo is being more efficient, bringing our customers in the position to get more products into the market without increasing throughputs and line speeds. We want to bring our customers in the position to be more efficient. And what we've seen is with our normal product inspection equipment, check weighing, x-ray, metal detection, and the vision systems and so on, everybody is looking into integration into their lines. But when you are doing a refurbishing of a complete line or retrofitting of a complete line, you often have not the space um, to integrate new and complete machines. So you are you are looking on compromises and uh, we thought that when we are having combination systems in the market that will help our customers um, tremendously because we are having one or two or three technologies on one common frame, probably shorter on a common frame than two or three technologies one after another. 
and uh, the benefits are it's, it's only one training process for the operator it's only one training process for the local maintenance guys in case of purchasing and evaluating from the from the procurement department you don't need to um, talk to so many suppliers you are doing everything with one or two suppliers who are having these combination systems and therefore we think the seamless integration on two or three or four technologies from metal to leader product inspection on one common frame is a real benefit to save line space and to reduce um, yeah, um, downtime and being more efficient due to operators are trained on one system. They can handle the system. They don't need multiple trainings and extra lessons on several and dedicated uh, machine interfaces. The new product data check technology that you've launched, how does that work and why did you introduce it to start with, I guess? So the new product data check option, we have two variants of that. One is the PDC product data check for oriented products. And the other one is the product data check 360 degrees for unoriented products. What we did is... We have in the Metal Toledo division, in the product inspection division, we have as well CI Vision and PCE with camera technology. And we used our internal smart camera systems and our yeah, well-known parts and mounting brackets, which we are already using for our machines to combine and to integrate these smart camera systems on our check weighing systems in the area of the infeed of the check weigher. We used our check weighing software and opened the software to do an integration for the camera software that the customer and the operator have only one single HMI and one software where he can operate both the check weigher system and the camera system. So you don't need additional HMIs, you don't need uh, additional IPCs, you don't need additional software and so on. Everything is fully integrated in the check weighing software. And we give our customers the possibility to have a camera inspection from the front side of the product, from the rear side of the product or from the top of each product or the combination of all three positions. The product data check 360 degrees is designed for products that may rotate on a conveyor belt, so especially round products, where we have um, a special configuration of six sensors, which are generating a 360 degree view of the product. And you can see the label and you can verify data on the product. All is mounted on the infeed of the new C-series check weigher and fully integrated mechanically wise and also integrated in this um, check weighing software that you are controlling check weigher software and camera software on one HMI. And how does the rejection part of this work? Is that done by hand or is that done automatically? We have an automatic reject system. We are tracking the products when they are reaching the infeed area and the check weighing area. Then we know exactly where we have the product on the conveyor belts. And at the end of the check weighing system, we have reject system sorting devices. Can be a normal air jet or a pusher system or a swing gate or a drop down or lift up conveyor system. And when the camera is checking something not conforming to the regulations or to the requirements, 
Then the camera will send um, a signal to the check wire controller. Um, the check wire controller is then deciding, okay, this product is nothing what we want to have in the grocery stores or at the end customer. And then we are doing an automatic reject. Timing and product tracking will be done completely with the real-time controller bought from the check weighing system. Obviously, it's useful in the dairy industry for, I would imagine, a whole host of products. I think it's not only dairy. It's um, You can use it everywhere, but special cases are in dairy. For instance, when you are looking on, on yogurt cups, for instance, you are filling yogurt cups with um, some special yogurt like a strawberry or so, and somebody is putting the lids, the aluminium lids, which will be glued on top after the yogurt cup is filled. And somebody is filling the, the wrong roll with the wrong lids um, into the machine. Then the yogurt cups are filled with yogurt, strawberry yogurt, but the lid is maybe pineapple or something like that. So you have a complete um, mislabeling for that. And the camera system can detect that. And then when you are detecting that, and you know normally I'm, I would expect on the lid a strawberry, but I can see no strawberry, it's a pineapple um, label, then it will be automatically rejected. So obviously it's not just being able to pick things like that up. It must save companies an awful lot of money to get that at the stage before it becomes a huge issue. The used case is, and um, I have a story for that, when you are going to the grocery store and buying something, um, you have a code on the product and a number and the best before date. The code will include the pricing information, the product information and so on. And the code must be readable from the scanner software at the checkout. When the code is not readable, it is not detected from the scanning system at the checkout from the cashier and the cashier must put the number manually via the keyboard 28 digits into that uh, scanning system to get the right information and the right price. This takes a little while and in the meantime you have a queue which is getting longer and longer at the cashier and at the end is somebody yelling hey what's going on over there I don't have so much time. So the lady at the cashier will go to the supervisor and say, hey, the barcode is not readable from the scanning system. We have to claim that product at our supplier. And the retailers are claiming then the complete batch which they have in the, in the grocery store and in, in the storage and shipping everything back and claiming a refund of that. And this can be a refund up to more than 10, 20, 30,000 euros per batch. And the uh, suppliers, the producers, they are looking on special quality checks, sometimes manually, sometimes with sensors, that the barcodes are readable, that the best before date is correct, that all the information about ingredients is there to avoid product records due to non-readable barcodes or missing information. And when the uh, list of the allergens or ingredients is not correct and somebody get hurt from the end customer, from the consumers, it's even worse. So they are spending a lot of time and a lot of efforts to do a quality check on that. But normally human beings can make human errors. So when you are looking one hour on a production line with the naked eyes, you can make mistakes. The camera system 
cannot make these mistakes. It's a technical item, it's a machine with software, with electronics behind, and our camera system is always checking if the barcode is there, if the barcode is readable, and if the best before date is there, if the best before date is readable, and if all um, ingredients which should be listed are there and readable. So we are doing a product check with the optical character recognition and the optical character verification. So short is OCR and OCV. When there's an issue, how is that recognized in terms of, obviously, the, the camera system recognizes it, but what does it do? Does it alert somebody or does it just stop the system? Um, you can have both. You can have both. We can create an alarm, maybe a bell or a horn, which will come up then. Um, we make an automatic reject and then you can program a successive error detection. If you have one or two or three rejects due to the same fault, this can be an indication that in the filling machine or in the labeling machine or in the sealing machine is something not correct. And with this successive error detection on the check weighing and camera system, you can improve your complete process. And you are not wasting many products because you get an early warning that maybe something is in the sealing or in the uh, filling machine not correct. So therefore, we are saving money as well. And we are making sure that you're not having non-conforming products in the supermarket. And for companies that ship to different countries, you can program this in different languages. And you could, could you even program it so that... It could be recognized, for instance, so this is a product that's supposed to be going to Greece, but it's in Arabic, that kind of thing. It's multiple languages are available. Um, same like on our check weighing technology, we have 40, 45 languages available. And the product data check technology, you know, it looks only if a barcode is there and readable. And if we are checking human readable text, we are learning the characters, we are learning the characters. And an R is an R or an A is an A. And if an A is not looking like an A, is looking like an B, the camera will compare that picture to, yeah, to, the, to the information we gave the camera already before. Then the camera will say, okay, this is not, not an A, it looks more like a B, um, I will reject it. And as you said, once there's been a couple of rejects or however many you've programmed it for then it would you can stop the system and make sure that it's not something that's going to be on every piece this is up to you and to our customers um, we recommending three consecutive errors in a row and then you must have an action on the uh, upstream or downstream machines um, that you can have a look where you have the error and yeah, especially for dairy, when you are rejecting yogurt cups and you are pushing them out of the line and you have 10, 15 yogurt cups on the floor, it's a mess to clean it up. So as earlier, you are stopping the line as better. So we are recommending three to maximum five consecutive rejects, then have an alarm, stop the machines, and then you can have a look what happens to improve your production line. And is this an easy system for companies to install on top of the equipment that they would normally have? Yeah, it's plug and play, I would say. When we are delivering machines, all the machines will be set up in the facility. We are doing a final quality test and a setup. We are offering our customers factory acceptance tests that our customers coming to Garvin's 
checking out the machines. Um, if they want to do that, we are open to do that. All the customers are welcome to check out their machines, but normally we are doing everything upfront based on the information from the order which we get from our customers and the URS, the user requirement specification. And then the machine will set up and ship to the facility. And one of our service technicians is setting up nearly in, in one day together with customer and operator training, one, maximum two days and everything is in place. From the usability, um, we often get back due to the fact that we are having a 15-inch or a 12-inch touchscreen with a very intuitive operation. People love to work with the Mettler Toledo equipment because it's so intuitive working with a, with a touchscreen and the menu system. And uh, we have as well our user management system where everybody can create his own profile according to his skills, to his job description, to his mother language. So if I would work in the UK in a dairy and coming from Germany and I would like to speak in my German language, I can set up the system with my user profile in German language and then I have my German language available. So it's very intuitive, very easy to handle. And it's a relatively small footprint as well, isn't it? So that would be good for, obviously, this is something that would be applicable to companies of most sizes. You know, when you are refurbishing a complete production line, you don't have often the space to add multiple machines one after another. And that's why we created this combination system where we have the product data check as an add-on on the infeed system of the checkwayer, where we are having everything on one common frame. I would say um, machine lengths up to uh, two meters, and that's it. So with a camera system with three cameras detecting in the back, on the front, and on the top, and then a check weighing system is roughly on a length of two meters. Four feet on the floor, everything is easy to clean. The complete system can be used in a wet environment. It is IP65 protected. So in that area where we are having the final inspection uh, with camera systems, we are having normally not a washdown area. We are having a wet cleaning area and therefore the machines are protected in IP65 rating. And what are your customers saying about this? We are getting feedback from the customers that this is exactly what they need. A simple smart camera system, fully integrated mechanically and software wise on an existing machine like a check weighing system. Switch it on and the machine is running, no problems at all, everything easy to use and to operate. And um, our customers are really excited because it is such a simple and easy tool and it's a very, very easy integration. You don't need to buy an extra IPC, you don't need to have an extra software programming company working for you to write your software, you don't need to have an extra company who is doing the mechanical integration. Everything is out of one hand and everything is so easy. The feedback is great, actually. Companies are probably saying, why didn't we have this before? Yeah, and you know, this is coming because since my, I'm since many, many years working for Metla Toledo, more than 12 years now. And um, the philosophy is when we are working with our customers together, it's, it's a partnership. And we are getting the feedback and the improvements and the wishes from our customers. And we are taking them seriously. 
and um, putting them on the list in the lifecycle management system. And we are improving on a continuous way based on our customers' feedback. And when the customer is coming with a very good idea, we are checking if this idea can work for all the other customers as well. And then we are putting that on our lifecycle management system and creating maybe a new release or a new machine, or we are building a new combination system like we did with the product data check system. Seems like everybody's really happy with the new system then. The best thing is we understood our customers, our customers' pain points, and we addressed with our machine to this pain points, a machine on a short footprint, two technologies on one frame. If you want, you can have as well metal detection in combination with that system. You can have X-ray systems in combination with that system. So we are open to everything. The message is everything on one common frame, seamless integration from one supplier. There are still a few face-to-face events scheduled for the remainder of the year, but others have tried to make the best of the situation by moving over to virtual events. One of those is Vita Foods, which held a virtual expo last week, and the Vita Foods Virtual Summit is taking place this week. One company involved in the event is Arla Foods Ingredients, and we talked to Torben Jensen, Senior Category and Application Manager for Fresh Dairy Products at Arla Foods Ingredients, about preparing for a virtual event and what the company was promoting at it. When it comes to actual events, they become routine and you send people and you have all of your products ready to showcase. How has the company approached a virtual event? Has it been easier, harder? What have you done to prepare? Uh, well, actually, we have to to rethink how we approach these uh, events. Because as you mentioned, normally we uh, prepare samples for tasting and we prepare our people to go there to present our concepts and our USP. So, of course, we have to rethink that uh, because that's not possible to be there physically and we are not able to share samples with our customers. So, in that perspective, it's quite different and also a challenge. The way we have tried to approach it is by uh, conducting webinars before the event. So, we invite the industry to join a webinar where we present our recipes, our products, of course, in a virtual way. Now we are in a situation where where we, of course, not can uh, show the samples and demonstrate uh, face-to-face. So we try to do that uh, in the best possible way by uh, organizing this webinar to prepare for the events. And then during the event, we have uh, open phone lines and we have uh, tried to make awareness about our ingredients and our applications. Is it something that moving forward that you think you'll do more webinars and more videos and that kind of thing that you can put on your website for people to look at? Yeah, of course, we we also learned that uh, this is a way to do it. So when Corona is disappearing, hopefully very soon, I think uh, all the events in the future then will be a combination of the two things, actually. So the good learning is that we maybe are able to prepare our industry or the industry that we serve in a better way by doing webinars before every uh, events. So that that could be a, a good learning at least. And what's the interest been like in the webinars and during the event because it's already started? How How is it going so far? Well, actually, uh, the, the webinar was quite good. We had a lot of visitors and also 
quite a few uh, good questions uh, during the webinar and also after uh, doing the Q&A session. So all in all, we are, we are happy with the way it, it has been working so far with the webinars and also good contacts during the exhibition. And what are you presenting at Vita Foods virtually? Uh, virtually, we are presenting our uh, new solutions for organic ingredients for the food industry. So that's the new thing from Marla Foods Ingredients that we now uh, have organic ingredients available. And that means for the dairy industry, we have solutions for different products here, both uh, fresh dairy products, cheeses, and also uh, ready-to-drink uh, berries. And you have the new recently launched MCI product? Yeah, that's part of it, but uh, in some cases it, it doesn't work alone, so you also need other ingredients. That's the reason why we call it uh, organic solutions. So it's a combination of different organic uh, ingredients in some cases. The MCI is a fairly recent addition to the stable, is it? Well, actually, it's only available from Q2 next year, so we are still in in the process of producing this organic ingredients, but it'll be ready in, in half a year. Sure. And what kind of products will that be useful for? As a single ingredient, the MCI is useful for the milk-based beverage, drinkable high-protein products. So that's the main product category for MCI. When, when you go into to yogurt and cheese products, the MCI cannot work alone. You, you need other ingredients. And all foods ingredients, we have ingredients available in organic uh, version as well. So we do uh, what we call tailor-made solutions for the other industries, for, for fresh dairy products and, and cheese. And what does the MCI do in a product? In the ready-to-drink, it's, it's mainly the heat stability, which is very important, especially when you go into these uh, high-protein sports nutrition. That's where we believe we have a, a good product. It's heat-stable, so you can make a, a 10% ready-to-drink milk-based beverage with 10% protein, as I said, and it's a UHT heat stable and also stable during shelf life. So that's a challenge. And I guess you have to work pretty closely with your customers to get them to exactly where they want to be. Exactly. And that's where we somehow miss the face-to-face conversation. This has to happen in another way now when we cannot see each other. So the way we do that is actually that we make samples in our pilot. We ship the samples to the client they do a tasting session and then we have a, a team or, or a Skype meeting or whatever to, to discuss uh, results and uh, discuss uh, possible adjustments in, in the right direction that the customer wants to do. So that's that's the way we, we are working now. Actually, we are, we are sending samples to customers. They evaluate. We have a meeting afterwards and uh, then we try to learn from each other and, and find the, the right solution that really fits the, the customer's uh, needs and uh, wishes. I guess that must be a challenge given that all of the customers that you have would probably have different equipment. Yes, so that's also part of it. So uh, first you try to find the right finished product and later on then you have to again adapt it to the processing that the customer have. If you take a, a yogurt again, you can have many different smoothing processes when when you finished when you fermented your your yogurt and afterwards if it's a stirred yogurt or drinking yogurt you you apply some shear stress and this can be very different from factory to factory and actually you need to adjust 
the recipe and maybe also adjust your, your process. Next, we had a chat with Sophie Davido, Innovation Director, Sweet Goods and Dairy for Europe, Asia and the Middle East at Givaudan, about the company's market research on plant-based dairy alternatives. So I'm personally the uh, Innovation Director for Sweet Goods and Dairy for uh, the region Europe, Africa, Middle East. So I'm going to comment mostly on the Europe, Africa, Middle East and the research we do in that, in that area. Uh, well, consumer research is something we do in general because... It is very important for us to understand, you know, how the consumers uh, feel uh, so that we can uh, support our customers bring great tasting products uh, into the market. Specifically on the topic uh, that we wanted to talk today, which is plant-based dairy, we have researched since 2016 in this area. So we've done uh, various campaigns of research uh, talking to consumers in different countries in order to understand what is the consumer's attitude towards the category of plant-based dairy. And what are you seeing as the big trends in plant-based right now? Yeah, so, you know, recently we talked to about 2,000 people in, in six countries. And the key trends, that the things that, that we've seen recently, which is in 2020 versus the research we did in 2016, the, the key, let's say, trend that we've seen that we didn't see before, uh, the first one would be that it's really getting mainstream, plant-based dairy. So today you have around 54% of the consumers that declare that they are consuming plant-based dairy as opposed to something more niche in 2016. And something interesting about those 54 is that most of them don't have a restricted diet. So they're not vegan, vegetarian. They are just people who go from one product to the next. So they consume dairy, they consume plant-based dairy, but they go from one segment to the next. So this is something interesting that we've, uh, we've noticed. The second is that the offer on the market is getting broader and uh, people are experimenting with products like they used to, like the yogurts, uh, like the milk, like the ice cream. But now, you know, you're seeing things on the market such as barista products. You see indulgent desserts uh, really coming on the market and you see there's really an appeal for these type of products. And then the last one, the third one I wanted to uh, maybe highlight here is the kids. So, you know, one of the things that we've noticed uh, in our latest research in 2020 is that families are starting to become the advocates for utilizing plant-based dairy as opposed to dairy. And the kids within those family would also consume plant-based dairy. So that means that there's a whole appeal for a series of products for kids. When before what we saw is maybe the parents would consume plant-based, but the kids will remain on dairy products. That's something that we've seen uh, recently as well. As you were talking there about previous research in 2016, and now you've got research in 2020 on plant-based, has it changed massively in four years? Like I was saying, you know, we've seen some shifts. I think what we've seen indeed is the increase of people buying into the category. So, you know, we went from a category that was relatively niche, that people tried, but they didn't know what it was. And now it's very versatile. People have tried products in the category. They will have a point of view of whether it tastes good or it doesn't, whether it's for them or not. So it's a much more, at least for, for, the, for the countries that I'm talking about here, which is mostly Europe, uh, it's a category that, that is, is quite well established now and is ready to take the next stage, as opposed to something in 2016 that was still really starting. Are you seeing any differences between countries within the region that you cover? 
So we see some differences, not huge. The key motivation that consumers have that pushes them towards plant-based dairy as an alternative to dairy are usually the same. So, you know, it is uh, health concerns, environmental concerns like uh, the gas emission, the, the land and water usage. It is the search for taste novelty. So for all of these countries, those key motivation to go for plant-based dairy are there. What you see is you see some differences between countries. So you see, for example, that in France, uh, environmental concern will be uh, more important than, for example, in uh, Germany, the health concerns will be more important. So you see those kind of shifts between the different countries, but overall, the key motivations are the same. Have you seen any changes in this because of the pandemic? Yes. So I think the pandemic has acted a, a bit like for other type of trends that were happening in the market. It's been an accelerator of trends. So I think the trend of going for more plant-based dairy was already there before the pandemic, as, we, as we've seen. And I think with the pandemic, it's really accelerated. So what we've seen is with the, the health concerns being even more important for the consumers, the plant-based dairy naturally came as an option for them. So it's really been an acceleration, but the trend was already there. And what solutions would you have at Givaudan that would help your customers in the area of plant-based? Yeah, so, you know, Givaudan, we really see ourselves as a, a partner for the uh, food and beverage company to co-develop products in the area of plant-based. So what we offer is, of course, an awful lot of consumer insight and market knowledge ingredient knowledge in order for them uh, to position themselves correctly on the market and bring products that will resonate well with the consumers. The second thing that we bring with us is, of course, a deep knowledge of the ingredient sources, the taste and uh, mouthfeel challenges that come with utilizing certain ingredients uh, and certain sources of ingredients. And of course, what we also have developed is some solutions to deal with those taste and mouthfeel challenges. So, Really uh, utilizing all our products, we can be the perfect partner for our customers to start developing products that will be successful in the market in the area of plant-based. And are you able to help companies right from idea through to launch? Yeah, so all customers, of course, are different. Some customers uh, have already a pretty good idea about what they want to bring on the market, and they are just facing some challenges due to the use of certain ingredients. And uh, we can, of course, recommend some recipe adjustment as well as the addition of certain clever technology in order to, uh, to make their products better. And then all the way to people who have an idea that they want to enter the market, but we help them from the beginning, from really positioning the, the, the product, ideating on the type of products that needs to be on the market, develop the recipe, uh, help them with the process, and then, of course, uh, help them with the final flavor of the, of the product. And are you able to work with companies at both ends of the scale, from very small companies all the way through to large ones? We can help everyone, of course, from the smaller players to the bigger players. And it's not always the biggest players who have the most knowledge in plant-based uh, dairy specifically. So, you know, some people uh, who are a startup, they've been playing in this area for years and years, and they already have quite a lot of knowledge and they need just some support to, to make their products better as opposed to some very large companies, uh, for them, it might be quite a new decision to actually enter the market and therefore they will need more support. So it's not necessarily just uh, the bigger customers that need uh, less help. It really depends on the company. The only recommendation I would have is if you're going to enter this category, just remember that taste is absolutely critical to satisfy the consumers. 
what we've seen is that when we talk to the consumers and we ask them whether they're satisfied or not in the current product that they buy, we get a large majority that say they are just about satisfied. So they find the products okay. They don't find them great. They find them okay. And therefore, there's no full lot of work still to be done to make the products that are already on the market better. But also, there's a lot of space for any company who wants to bring a product in the market that will really hit with taste with the consumers. And now it's over to Tetra Pak with an interview about their recent 2020 sustainability report. And to tell us more about that is the company's vice president of sustainability, Marcus Fenner. All right, so perhaps we could start with just an overview of what the new 2020 sustainability report from Tetra Pak actually includes. Yeah, sure. And first of all, uh, thanks for having me on today's podcast. With our sustainability report, we are continuing a uh, history, I think our history of sustainability and environmental reporting that extends over more than uh, two decades now by regularly sharing our approach and also our progress in meeting our goals. Released on a yearly basis, uh, the report basically evaluates uh, every part of uh, the business and impacts across the entire value chain, including basically uh, advances against our environmental commitments, our societal impact, and uh, our achievements against uh, our goals of protecting food, people, and futures. And we use protecting food, people, and futures as the pillars, you can say, to communicate our sustainability story. So we, we are guided overall by the UN Sustainable Development Goals in prioritizing our sustainability efforts, and we have assigned the most relevant to each pillar. This focus on the Sustainable Development Goals builds on our uh, ongoing commitment to the UN Global Compact, to which Tetra Pak has been a signatory uh, since 2004. And in addition, we leverage our biannual materiality assessment, which helps us identify and also prioritize those aspects of our business which have the greatest uh, positive stakeholder impact. Uh, so this year's sustainability report uh, is underpinned by our strategy 2030, which will guide you know, our company over the next decade. And in this, leading the sustainability transformation is uh, central and will also be achieved through the continued implementation of, on one side, low carbon circular economy solutions, and on the other side, uh, ongoing efforts to enhance sustainability in our own operations and also across the full value chain. Has the coronavirus pandemic changed anything in terms of priorities for sustainability? Yeah, that's a you know good question, and I think it's a it's a question that uh, is asked a lot at the moment. So I think it goes without saying that COVID-19 has had and, and, and still is having an unprecedented effect on communities worldwide. But despite these challenges, it has remained clear to us that our commitment to protecting uh, what's good has never been more vital for Tetra Pak. If anything, you know, COVID-19 has made our sense of purpose 
uh, I think even stronger. So throughout the crisis, our priorities have been to protect people. So keeping our own employees safe, as well as our customers and other stakeholders, as well as to protect food, right? So helping uh, our customers maintain continuous food supplies to the people, to the communities. And for example, when COVID-19 lockdowns and travel restrictions you know, were at their peak, uh, customers around the world were able to yeah, rely on our uh, on-site and remote support teams to basically keep supply chains operating as usual, helping them to reach the communities quickly. Internally, I would say, you know, encouraging balanced and flexible working arrangements for our employees has been a top concern for us for quite some time now. And during the crisis, the ongoing crisis, we have, you know, broadened the scope of this uh, even further, I would say, so that employees can stay safe and so that they can do what they can do best, which is uh, supporting our customers in the best way possible. You know, the reality is that the full impact of COVID-19 is still to be seen, and it will take a while for us uh, to go back to the new normal, but our commitment towards sustainability will continue, and our investment will remain at the same level. To answer your original question, the only change to our sustainability goals uh, is that we have you know, accelerated them. For instance, it was in, in June this year, we announced our commitment to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions in our own operations by 2030, with the ambition to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions for the full value chain by 2050. And I think this is one, one example of that. That's something that's mentioned in the report, a couple of things mentioned in the report, the digitalization and connectivity mentioned as providing new opportunities. How do you see those opportunities in terms of your company? Yeah, and also these are very prominent topics. There are a number of opportunities that both digitalization and, and connectivity can offer to improve on food safety, quality, and also uh, sustainability. And th this is something we have uh, been focusing on over the last few years in particular. Last year, we announced our vision of the factory of the future, in which digitalization allows uh, food manufacturing plants to continuously increase the speed of production, reduce errors, and also minimize uh, product waste. It's an important element of sustainability. We also know that connectivity is an area in our industry that must, improved, must be improved. And so in 2019, we launched our connected packaging platform, offering end-to-end -end, uh, traceability to our customers, helping consumers access information such as you know, the farm the ingredients came from, or also where uh, the package can be recycled. And linking it back to how we have been adapting during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, we have moved all our product trials for customers into the virtual world. I think it's a great example how we have been adapting and how people have been flexible uh, in that sense. So by transforming our product development center offering, we have not only made new product developments you know, safe and accessible during the pandemic, but also increased the overall fluency, flexibility and, and frequency of, of innovation, as well as making it, of course, uh, sustainable with less travel, as an example. 
And how does Tetra Pak work with governments on policies on sustainability? We have a long history of working with governments and, and policy issues related to sustainability, food packaging, and also um, healthy diet. We advocate, you can say, for progressive evidence-based policy uh, to address societal challenges, such as climate policies uh, that are aligned with the highest level of uh, ambition in the Paris Agreement to reach net zero uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Uh, we also work in partnerships through industry and trade associations that share um, similar objectives. So we take part in policy events and, and where possible, of course, we, we directly engage with national governments uh, as well. You know, as an example, a new school milk program was launched uh, by the Sri Lankan government in, in raising awareness of environmental issues, including recycling, at the same time as tackling child malnutrition and promoting growth in the local dairy sector. The, the program initially covers uh, 400,000 children and is using 100% uh, locally produced UHT milk. And it is fully funded by the government and implemented by the Ministry of Education. And our customer there, Cargill's uh, Ceylon, started supplying milk in our packaging, uh, Tetrafino, aseptic packages to 180,000 of these uh, school children, which we hope to increase in the future. And I would say that to be successful in realizing a low carbon circular economy, partnership is, is absolutely you know, a key word at each and every step of the value chain. And you've outlined Tetra Pak's sustainability goals. How do you work with your own customers to work on their sustainability goals? Because obviously they must vary wildly depending on the size and type of the company and the location. Yeah, good question. We support our customers with their sustainability goals in many ways. First, on sustainable packaging solutions. So on average, uh, more than 70% of a Tetra Pak carton, typically by weight, is paperboard. Although we don't own uh, or manage any forests, we apply our purchasing power to promote uh, sustainable forest management. And on this one, we introduced the FSC certification system to the liquid food carton industry already in 2007, the first in our industry to do so. Uh, seven years later, in 2014, we finalized the uh, chain of custody certification covering uh, over 90 facilities worldwide, making it actually one of the FSC's largest multi-site certifications. So during these years, we, we have worked with paperboard suppliers around the world to, to ensure that all our 30 material factories are supplied with paperboard from 100% FSC certified or other controlled sources. And, and this has enabled us to deliver over 500 billion FSC labeled packages in more than 110 countries, actually, helping our customers uh, to win environmentally conscious consumers. As part of our commitment towards the fully renewable packaging, we continuously you know, explore sustainable alternatives that shift us from high carbon fossil based materials to renewable um, and responsibly sourced ones. In November 2019, in the end of last year, we became the first company in the food and beverage industry to obtain the Bonsucro chain of custody certification 
which basically ensures traceability across all stages in the supply chain from feedstock production to consumption. Then, according to the Food and uh, Agriculture Organization, today 33% of uh, food is lost or wasted uh, actually every year. Tetra Pak's brand promise is protects what's good. And our packaging and processing solutions also uh, are all designed to minimize the waste of uh, food and, and resources. You know, another part uh, is recycling. So with regard to recycling, Tetra Pak carton packages are recyclable. They are collected and recycled where efficient waste management and uh, recycling infrastructure is in place. Uh, in Europe, for example, almost half of our beverage cartons are already collected for recycling today, but we aim for more here. We use a customized approach to minimize the um, full effect and, and, and work across the full value chain and match regional needs. So we aim to drive positive change in a, in a dynamic world connected to local waste management systems as well. So this means securing access to collection and recycling and accelerate advancements in uh, priority areas. And, and this also includes um, investment. 23 million euro have been invested by us uh, between 2012 and 2019. We have developed quite well and grew the number of facilities where beverage cartons are recycled from 40 in 2002 to more than 170 today. So there was one big area now, uh, sustainable packaging solutions. The other area we're working with our customers together is uh, sustainable equipment solutions. Um, Tetra Pak is a full system provider. You know, so equipment solutions and packaging solutions um, and services. On that, you know, approximately 50% of our climate impact comes from the operation of our equipment at our customer sites. So continuous investment in innovation is helping us to offer processing solutions which enable reduction in water consumption, carbon footprint, and also food waste. So in addition to this, we offer environmental benchmarking and improvement services so that uh, our customers' greenhouse gas emissions will be reduced significantly, uh, contributing to their own sustainability targets like climate. This also translates into reduced operational costs for our customers. So to sum all up, we take a whole value chain approach, you can say. I think climate is a good example of that. We measure our climate performance, not just on our own operations, but across the whole value chain with the ambition, again, to reach uh, and achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by uh, 2050. And as far as the report's concerned, it mentions the three pillars of food, people and futures. I wonder if you could sort of give me a, the key takeaways from, from those three pillars. Yes, absolutely. We made strong progress in advancing our commitment to protecting food, people and futures in 2019. And hopefully uh, the statistics uh, speak for themselves. So first on food, in 56 countries, we have participated in uh, school feeding programs. Uh, 68 million children received milk or other nutritious uh, products in Tetra Pak packages in schools. And over 36,000 smallholder farmers were reached uh, by our dairy hubs. 
Then secondly, on futures, for four years running now, we have made the uh, CDP A-list. We were rated uh, A for our efforts against climate change and also to protect forests. We became the first carton packaging company to launch paper straws in Europe in 2019, as well as the first company in the food and beverage industry to offering packaging with fully traceable supply chain of uh, plant-based polymers. So bon sucro is mentioned before. Last year, renewable electricity use across our operations increased from 55% in 2018 to 69%. And we are very well on track to meet our RE100 target of 80% by 2020 uh, and 100% by 2030. Then also uh, reduced total greenhouse gas emissions by 11% uh, as part of our main 2020 climate goal. So to cap emissions at 2010 levels despite business growth. 11% means that we are ahead of our target. And then also 50 billion Tetra Pak carton packages were collected for recycling last year. And on the third part, uh, people we have seen a 14% rise in women in top management, 66% of uh, employees utilizing flexible working, now available in, in all the countries, and 148 new participants enrolled in our uh, global future talent program that we are, we are running. The report mentions dairy hubs. I wonder if you could fill me in on what those are. Yes, certainly. Our dairy hub model allows us basically to build sustainable value chains by linking smallholder farmers with dedicated processors in uh, you know, a selected area. So Tetra Pak and Tetra Laval then provide technical assistance and hands-on practical uh, knowledge transfer through our international dairy experts. We began operating this model due to concerns that global milk demand will overtake supply within the next decade. And with nearly you know, 1 billion people living on dairy farms, uh, small holdings or in uh, landless uh, households, keeping one or, or, or a few animals, the dairy industry holds a huge potential to, to create jobs and, and increased incomes across the value chain. So by providing smallholder farmers with training and setting up appropriate cooling infrastructure and technology, dairy processors in developing markets can increase their stable supply of locally produced quality milk. So th this helps them to grow their business and increase profitability by creating a more efficient local supply chain. And in 2019, three new dairy hubs were set up in uh, Albania, Tanzania and also uh, Uganda. Uh, and this helped increase by 27% the number of smallholder farmers uh, reached by this program. What are the areas or the key areas that you're working on at the moment to continue to make a difference in the short and the long term? Yeah, the journey to create you know, low carbon circular packaging shouldn't be addressed in isolation. The complexity of sustainability and, and climate change uh, requires a really holistic approach. So we have a long history of working in partnership with our customers and also other stakeholders 
to drive positive change in the sustainability arena. And having said that, we see three overall focus areas. First, to address climate change. Second, to advance the circular economy. And third, to protect biodiversity. And all these areas are priorities in the short and also long term. And they are very much interlinked, certainly. So in in addressing climate change, we we cannot ignore the material sector and, and the role that packaging can potentially play, particularly looking at renewable plant based materials. Recycling is a key element as well, circularity, but it's it's not enough. We must also take into account the climate impact and how the sourcing of the materials is done in the first place. And in focusing on these key areas, climate, circularity and biodiversity, we are working towards our goal of creating carton packages made solely from renewable or recycled materials fully recyclable and and supportive of a low-carbon circular economy. Now we head over to Dublin for a weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from StoneX. This week saw the butter market and skim milk powder market as well uh, remain relatively stable. Butter does feel a bit heavier um, and skim milk powder feels relatively well supported i guess we saw september butter remain around the 34 50 60 level uh, maybe slightly stronger maybe up around 10 or around from from last week quarter four was down all right around 25 euros to the 34 50 level 34 40 34 50 level quarter one remained relatively stable i guess really if we saw some buyers come into that market we would have seen that drop a little bit as well uh was trading around the 34 40 34 50 level but in the few trades that did happen uh quarter two uh was trading um much more consistently and was down around 25 euros to the 3500 level it feels like physical butter is also under a little bit of pressure to start to this week cream seems to be remaining stable so far Skimmel powder um, seems to be buoyed up and, and a bit better bid. Uh, September is up around 30 euros, trading around the 21.75 level. Quarter four is up around the 21.80 level, which is up around 25 euros on the week. Um, whereas quarter one and quarter two are remaining flat uh, around the 21.85 level, 22.25 level respectively. Uh, I guess Skimmel Powder took some support out of the GDT yesterday, which overall was was stronger, up about 3.6%, uh, with Skimmel Powder being particularly strong and up eight, over 8%. Um, meanwhile, butter was down 1.2%. Whey has remained relatively stable this week. Thanks, Liam. We'll talk to you again next week. StoneX, formerly INTLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for the 100th Dairy Dialogue. There are five Wednesdays in September, so still two more podcasts to come this month. So for me, it's a four-day school weekend and trying to do interviews while Netflix and YouTube eat up my bandwidth. There's a fine forecast for the weekend, which surely won't happen, and loads of sport to watch while pretending to be busy doing other things. Not enough hours in the day. Anyway, time to sign off, so I hope you all have a great week. Take care, stay safe, and as always, thanks for listening.